0: In any life, we have highs and lows, light and dark, wins and losses. What happens when we encounter that moment in time when what happens next could change everything? Join us as we step into another person's inspirational moment and see how we can connect their experience to ours. This is Greg Stevens, and you're listening to A Shot of Inspiration. Welcome to another episode of A Shot of Inspiration. My guest today is a very good friend of mine named Anidio Mahel. Now, this episode may go a bit long because Anidio is one of the most inspirational and interesting people I've met in my lifetime. And I met Anidio probably in 2003. We worked on a project together. I brought Anidio in on a big leadership program that we started working with. I met him through Chris Douglas, who you've seen earlier. And Chris and Anidio both, I think, did the spiritual psychology work in San Diego. And he'll t- talk a bit about that. But Anidio has an amazing Life story, and I want you to hear all of it. And also, Nidio currently does work in diversity, equity, and inclusion with a lot of different companies around the world, actually. And I'll let him tell a little about his career, what he's doing, but I also I want to dive into his entire life, where he came from, how he got to the United States, and how his life has just kind of unfolded into the amazing life it's been. So Anidia, thank you for being on today. I really appreciate you coming on the show and uh, tell guests a little about yourself, what you do now, and then let's just kind of see where it goes organically.
1: Okay. Well, thank you for the invitation. And uh, I don't think I've really thought of my life as inspirational. So I want to just start off with um, with, a, with a thank you about looking at it from that perspective, because as I've gone through my life, I've just thought, you know, this is what people do. Uh, and until someone points it out that you become aware of, maybe that is a different road that I've traveled equally as valid as other th- roads, but so so I appreciate the opportunity and our friendship, by the way. Absolutely, um, thank you. So you, I, I do diversity, equity and inclusion. It, it has evolved from EEO conversation back in the you know, early 90s to belonging and understanding really more about the equity part of, um, of what work life can uh, provide people. And most of uh, the conversations that I hold is giving people an opportunity to turn the flashlights on themselves, turn the flashlights on their organization, their teams, and really ask themselves if we really truly are aspiring for belonging and inclusion, then how are we doing? And so that question is just more of a ponder question for people to recognize uh, what is it that they do that currently helps people achieve their maximum potential? And then what are some other things that may be well-intended, but limit people from uh, having full access to the support and, and their voice being heard? So really, I um, I fly around the world with a bunch of markers and, and chart paper, and I just put it up and go, let's talk about this as, as a ponder question, and that's really how a lot of uh, the the sessions that I have facilitated, obviously with, with some framework in mind, but to your point earlier, um, organic and the way in which people develop the conversation is where I'm now living uh, as a facilitator.
0: Yeah. Well, also, Nidia is a great speaker. Actually, he did his first, officiated his first wedding a couple months ago for a friend of ours. And I have to say, folks, I'm a minister's kid. I've been to hundreds of weddings, been in a lot myself, even officiated. And idiot you did the best job I have ever seen an officiator do in a wedding. It really he reached out and touched you. And I know that's it's it, the way he speaks, it's really authentic. And that's what I love about so many people are resistance around resistant around the diversity, equity, inclusion conversation because they feel. They don't need it, there's a sense of shame, there's a reaction to it. And one of the things I've learned is we can't learn anything new until we lean into those hard conversations. Yeah. And what I also get is it's not a shaming piece about what you do, it's something about let's discover. It's that organic opening up. Tell me, and I think a lot of your ability to do that came from your life story. So, what I'd like to do to kind of guide you, guide the audience where you came from and why you're probably so good at what you do mm-hmm. uh, is your life. So walk us through where you started out and uh, just kind of walk us through. And I'm going to engage with you and ask questions along the way. But where did you where were you born? Where'd you start your where'd you start off and and when? So
1: this is <laughs> this is an interesting uh, piece of of starting the conversation because my birth certificate says Havana. Cuba but the real place that I was born was in a little town right outside of Santa Clara and my mom dad and and my grandfather were at a circus Uh, and my grandfather had a heart attack at the circus and so off they rushed my mom who was pregnant with me and the same hospital bed that my grandfather died I was born and so it was one of those moments where uh, you just don't know where you're going to start life, and even though my birth certificate says Havana, I think that you know uh, a lot of folks at that time uh, they're very much into impressions. You know, if you if you live in a bigger town versus a, a, a little uh, farm farm town, that could uh, give you some advantages. And so uh, that that was the beginning of it. That was the beginning of my life: is death and birth at simultaneously. And I then grew up in Havana and since, you know, birth to nine, I was in Cuba until I was asked to be the first one out of my family to get on an airplane and and leave the country under a student visa. And so uh, that's what I was, that's what I did. So you all by yourself? By myself, I was nine years old. I was about to turn 10 um, and... You know, you you asked me to consider some questions that we were going to speak about. And, and one of them was this moment of an influential moment that has really uh, set the direction for your life. And for me, that was one of those. I've had plenty. In fact, I had one this morning as I, I was taking my walk down Congress Avenue uh, early in the morning. There was a person who was living in the streets waking up as I was walking by and I uh, said, good morning. And he looked at me with a smile in his face and said, good morning back. And for me, that was such an inspiration to consider that that person could smile at me. And it was such a transformational way of understanding, you know, what issues do I really have? (laughs) Why don't I smile more often? And, And so you know, inspiration for me almost comes daily, but to be more specific as, as a life event, then I would say that that trip was a life event. For mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Well, I remember you telling me one time that that's one of the reasons you were interested in uh flight industry. Uh, yes. tell about that one. Wow. Yes. Yes. <laughs> you're nine years old, you're on this plane, and all these flight attendants are like paying that's attention right. to you. That's right. That's
1: right. And, and you talk about seeing life in from black and white to full color in a matter of an instant. That was one of those times in which I, you know, inspiration for me comes in surprises. And if I, I was so surprised that life was so different than what I had experienced the first nine years of my life, that it just opened up. Uh, it's like cleaning your glasses after they've been foggy. You see just elements of life that, you, that I had never seen before. Uh, my routine, you know, growing up in Cuba was very sheltered. And because we had declared the intent to leave and we were non-communist, we immediately got marked as a family. You know, there, there were placards on the door that says, you know, this, this, none of your contents belong to you uh, on my walk to school which was a short walk but most of the kids wore the red bandana meaning that you know they were uh part of the communist uh, party and I was one of maybe two that didn't wear the red bandana and so the so the walk to school was just a gauntlet of uh harassment um being told that I was a worm that my family was no good and and, and that was the first 9 years of my life where I endured I don't even know if enduring is part of of what I was thinking back then, but I was uh, given access to some emotions and feelings that I didn't experience inside of my home. Inside of my home was, you know, you're you're beautiful, you're talented, you you can achieve anything. And then the moment that I walked down 23 steps, um, the other side of the emotional cleansing, I think, uh, was being shown for me. So, I, I ran in and out of school. I never went out. I was never really a kid that had a bunch of toys or anything like that, just because we were limited by, by the choices that, that my family had made. So take that scenario almost a daily, and, and by the way, unfortunately, in Cuba we went to school Monday through Saturday, so I had to endure you know six days out of the week. Um, the moment I sat down. On that airplane, Uh, the moment that I started to recognize that life had love and joy and that it wasn't given by my family, that it was the true strangers that actually saw me as a valuable individual And one of them was, you know, uh, Panama Airlines. I still have the little set of wings that the flight attendants gave me. They took me back in the galley and, and they just doted over me on that flight to Madrid. And I was surprised that these were not false comments that people were giving me. I was surprised that people were genuinely happy to see me. And all of that gave me an awareness early on of not belonging to belonging and it was early on and that then set my trajectory to recreate those experiences of belonging for other people because it felt so good and and it also felt like it was it it was for me not you know for anyone else It, it was truly very much a personal way that people were expressing their love uh, in this, you know, maybe if I wasn't a nine-year-old, 10-year-old child, I'm not sure, but but just behaviors that I had never experienced before, comments that I had never heard before. Um, imagine being on a 707 airplane for the first time, going to another place. It was Disneyland coming to me early on after those horrific experiences that I had as a child.
0: Well, it also must have been... widely wide wide range of emotions because your family's not there with you and you probably don't know what the next step is i mean i don't know uh i I know that you get off the plane that was that moment that went from black and white to color or you got that cold drink after walking through the desert yes Uh, Yes. but Walk us through what happened when you got to Madrid. I mean, where did you live? Did, was anyone
1: there to greet you? What happened? So you know, going back to your your first question about the um the the seesaw of emotions, you know, having that kind of Disneyland experience and then recognizing that I may not be seeing my parents and sisters for a very long period of time but here's here's the truth. the joy of being loved sweeps you to such a point where all the other things that I would have factored in, not having a family, not having, you know, resources, um, became secondary. And so I was really propelled by I love, as as silly as that might sound, uh, everything else just kind of disappeared. And and the most attractive part and and the thing that sustained me during that period of time was was just the kindness of a stranger. And and so for me, hospitality is is when you love a stranger. And and that's what I was experiencing uh, more often than thinking about my family. Uh, but my instructions were simple. You know, when, when you get to Madrid, just, you know, first person you see, you declare asylum and, and you kind of take it from there. And I think I saw a baggage handler or whoever opened the door. You know, I was like, I'm here to declare asylum. So it's like, what am I going to do with this kid? And it, so just I wasn't the only one that was going through that process during that period of time. So they were accustomed to seeing immigrants, but very few kids. Um, yeah there there was a there was a, a, an effort uh, called the Peter Pan effort to get a lot of kids into catholic uh, homes way before i immigrated but but i bypassed that uh my father and I overlapped uh, at some point, but he was on his own trajectory. I was on my own trajectory. My sister and uh, my, my two sisters and mom stayed behind in Cuba. And when I got there, I, you know, there was there was a lot of support, uh, a lot of Cubans who had done what I was doing earlier. And so they kind of ushered me through the process of finding a home. And this home that I ended up with. Uh, a milk dairy. And the woman that ran the milk dairy, it was on the first level of the store. She had three floors up where some other immigrants were there. And I happened to be one of those. Being a child, Maria took me in. You know, she had that mother instinct and she just took me in, and I would go down and work with her in the milk dairy and just kind of first time that I ever had chocolate yogurt. I I had no idea that yogurt comes in different flavors. And so there was that element of surprise. There was that element of inspiration about life has so many little gifts that you can discover that kind of made me feel like um, everything was going to be okay, even though mom, dad, sisters, aunts, uncles, grandparents, you know, may not be part of my future.
0: Well, what I hear you really saying is, you focused on what you did have and not what you didn't have in the
1: moment. And it wasn't me because I I didn't think I had the brain power to recognize that it was mainly uh, being pulled for me to to look at. And so I, I really didn't do anything but just uh, set the world free and allow that freedom to kind. Bring up the motivation that I needed in order to sustain the pain that I wasn't even aware of that was happening. It showed up later, though. In my 30s, I became you know like a 10 year old, and and thank goodness for my wife, she she recognized that I was just going through that kid stage that I didn't have back then. So, how long were you in Madrid? So I was in Madrid, and and, and I was trying to think because it was all such a blur. Um, Especially I was actually nine. Probably about three months, four months. Okay. Okay. And then um, I was given entry to the US because I I became a hardship case, a child without parents by themselves. And so it it kind of gave me a certain priority in in being given a visa uh, to immigrate. And so I went from Cuba, I mean, Cuba to Madrid, Madrid, Portugal, Portugal, New York, New York, Dallas. And in Dallas, there was a Cuban family that had no children, but had, you talk about, you talk about love. These these two uh, couple just wanted to be of service. And one way that they were of service was to, you know, bring in people into their homes and they were childless and they've always had this desire to be, you know, to be parents. And so I became their surrogate and Funny part. I'm jumping a little bit, but but as you're asking me these questions, I'm reminded of of the experience. Um, years later, like fast forward the tape, I was already in aviation and and all that. I got based out of Dallas, and I went back and lived with them as an adult. And I had my room, and everything was just like you know it was when I was a ten year old, crashing but on my, the couch. <laughs> <laughs> yes, 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 yes. That's great. Yes. And so then then that, that started the whole process of me then as a result of the privilege that I was given to be the first one to show up in the U.S. I then went to Mexico and got visas for my parents. I remember flying into the consulate in Mexico City. When I got to the Mexico City consulate, there was a movie star there who, her name was Olga Guillot, and she was a, a, a very famous singer. But she too was at the embassy frequently in order to shepherd people through. And so when I showed up, she picked me up, literally sat me on the consular's desk and said to me, honey, tell them what you need. And so she said, I just want my parents out. And so immediately I got the visas for my mom and and sisters to go to Mexico. And they they went to Mexico and were there for a year, uh, living in a convent. And uh, my dad then did the same trajectory going through Europe, et cetera. And and here we landed in Austin, Texas five years later.
0: Now, did everyone land back in Austin?
1: Yes, at different times.
0: At different times.
1: At different times. So after I I had gone through what I just described to you, my grandparents had already made their way out as well. And so they ended up in Austin, Texas. I started living with my, my grandparents until people just started showing up. It was like, who's going to come today?
0: <laughs> well, but anyway, also, I got to throw this in there because the listeners are going to love this. If you're anywhere in Austin and you know uh, the original Kirby Lane, yeah, Enidio lived in the actual house that Kirby Lane is located. Is that correct?
1: That's right, and you're probably eating in my bedroom or my parents' bedrooms. <laughs> you just didn't know it. I've, and there are times in which I just take the you know the, the waiter's hand along and say, "Let me show you something that I know you would never know is here. And it's like my initials carved on in a certain part of the home or something like that. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. So what what how old were you when you landed in Austin? So, I just so I left Cuba when I was nine. I had my birthday uh while I was away, and I was ten years old. Oh, so all that happened in in that amount of time where you went to
0: Madrid, you went to Dallas, you yeah. went to Mexico City, all that within a year within a year. Wow, yeah. okay, that's a lot. Nine to ten year
1: old. That's a lot of Disneyland, isn't it? <laughs> it really
0: is. It really is. And yeah. so you uh I guess at that point you enrolled school here in Austin. And then I guess yeah, uh, you just stayed in Austin the entire time. Is that correct? Yeah,
1: yeah. Burnett Junior High. And um my sixth grade teacher changed my name from Anidio to Sam. And I was Sam for six years of my life. I never. And knew It <laughs> was like, what is happening? But I'm I'm going along with it because so far it had turned out to to my advantage for sure. Well, th- when did you change it back? So I changed it back much later. Like I was, I I still Bernard Junior High, and then went to Lanier High School. And some of those kids that I was in in uh, Bernard Junior High would transition with me to Lanier, so they knew me as Sam. And I remember winning a contest that was like a young Texan award that they were, you know, offering. And I was, you know, one of the winners for, for Texas. And they had a little clip of me holding my award and said, Sam Mahel wins award. And I had kept the clipping. And years later, my nine-year-old uh, daughter, Missy, she was looking through the scrapbook. She goes, Who is this? You know, who's Sam Mahel?" <laughs> was like oh my gosh that that was something that I had. I I didn't realize that it had become my identity but others who never knew that story was confused as to who 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 are you and and I'm still and I'm still looking for that answer quite honestly but but it just keeps reveal itself and I kept it till about my senior uh, when I went to college I, I started using an Anidio. It, it's still my pizza ordering name. It's so easy to say, you know, Sam, an Anidio and spell it seven times, you know, so I use it every once in a while, but it's my choice when I use it now, which is a big difference versus being given that as, as the choice.
0: Being told who you are. Anidio, yeah. thank you so much for being on today, great. and we will do this again. I appreciate you opening up about your personal stories and giving people a glimpse into who you are, because folks, this is one of the most amazing people I know. And thank you for being on the show. And folks, we'll see you again on another episode of A Shot of Inspiration. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much. Bye-bye, Great.
1: Thank you for listening. This ends part one of this two-part interview. Hear the rest of this story in our next episode.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of A Shot of Inspiration. If you like this or any of our other episodes, make sure you rate it, share it with a friend. This is Greg Stevens and we look forward to being with you next time. Until then, be bold, be courageous, and respectfully speak your truth.